Yes, I'm Ali Velshi in for Alex Wagner. A MAGA freak show. That's how one person familiar with Donald Trump's January 6th trial preparations described the former president's strategy, according to Rolling Stone magazine. In new reporting today, Rolling Stone cites several of Trump's legal and political advisors who claim that the former president is demanding that they incorporate fringe conspiracies into his legal defense. Quote, his list of ideas has included asserting that there's evidence that anti-Trump elements in the FBI framed him and MAGA protesters by using undercover agents and informants to instigate the deadly January 6th riot. That anarchists and left-wing anti-fascists played a role in attacking the Capitol that day. And that Trump's lieutenants had gathered real evidence showing, quote, massive amounts of voter and election fraud, end quote, in 2020 in swing states and heavily Democratic urban areas as he has long baselessly claimed, end quote. Now, Trump's team has even discussed calling witnesses like Nancy Pelosi and other political foes to the stand in an effort to paint them as the true villains of January 6th. That new reporting helps explain why just last week, the special counsel Jack Smith asked the judge overseeing Trump's federal elections case to prohibit Trump from raising any of those conspiracies at trial. Jack Smith appears to have anticipated these fantastical, absurd arguments from Trump. And legally, it is absurd. It's hard to see how trotting out long debunked right wing conspiracy theories would help Trump win over a jury in Washington, D.C. But politically, this strategy of repeating the same conspiracy theories over and over does seem to be working with many Republican voters. New polling from The Washington Post finds that Republican voters, quote, are now less likely to believe that January 6th participants were mostly violent, less likely to believe Trump bears responsibility for the attack and are slightly less likely to view Joe Biden's election as legitimate than they were in December of 2021. In follow-up interviews, some voters told The Post their views have changed because they now believe the riot was instigated by law enforcement to suppress political dissent, a baseless conspiracy theory that has been promoted by Trump. And several voters interviewed by The Post cited what they said was evidence of voter fraud, in particular, the long-debunked claim that Georgia election workers were caught on video putting fake, fake ballots into tallies, end quote. That theory was so outlandish that a jury recently ruled that Rudy Giuliani has to pay two Georgia election workers nearly $150 million for his role in spreading baseless conspiracies about them. But despite that ruling, despite Fox News settling a lawsuit for hundreds of millions of dollars over spreading related election conspiracy theories, despite a year of hearings and of testimony from the January 6th committee debunking these claims, those conspiracies continue to gain ground with Republican voters. And Trump now wants to use his January 6th criminal trial to push the conspiracies even further. That is, if Trump does manage to see the inside of a courtroom before Election Day tonight, we're expecting Donald Trump's legal team to tell the D.C. appeals court why they believe Trump should be immune from prosecution for anything he did as president. Trump's federal criminal trial is effectively on pause until that question is settled. And Trump's legal team is expected to push that question all the way to the Supreme Court in an effort to delay the case. At the same time, it looks increasingly likely that the Supreme Court is going to have to weigh in on another major issue for Trump. 
the question of whether or not Trump will appear on the ballot in several states. So far, Maine and Colorado have both determined that Trump is ineligible to run for president, citing a clause in the 14th Amendment that bars anyone who once held office and then engaged in insurrection from running for office. Tonight, Trump's team officially appealed Maine's decision to remove him from the ballot in that state, citing the Maine Secretary of State, or calling the Maine Secretary of State, a biased decision maker who acted in an arbitrary and capricious manner. Across the country, in Colorado, the Democratic Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, today joined the Colorado Republican Party and the Colorado voters who successfully challenged Trump's eligibility in asking the Supreme Court to step in and settle this matter once and for all. We're also awaiting a similar filing from the Trump campaign, asking the court to weigh in. That filing could come at any moment as well. Joining us now is the Maryland congressman and member of the January 6th committee, Jamie Raskin. He's a congressman from Maryland. Uh, congressman, good to see you. Thank you for being with us. Great to be with you, Ali. Congressman, what do you make of, of, of all of the posturing by Donald Trump about immunity? He makes sort of two separate cases. One is that he's immune from anything he did while he was president, which would tackle a couple of the cases he's involved in. It wouldn't it wouldn't deal with everything. But the other is that uh, with respect to the election, he was tried by Congress um, and he was not convicted by the Senate. Uh, you'll recall after Donald Trump's uh, acquittal by the Senate, Mitch McConnell himself said this is a matter for the courts to handle. Apparently not for Donald Trump. Yeah, well, on the first point, um, immunity from prosecution for crimes committed during the course of your presidency would be a standing invitation to do what Donald Trump did to try to overthrow the government, because you could never be prosecuted for trying to do that. So Trump would be setting the template for people getting into office and then doing whatever they could, lie, cheat, and steal in order to convert our di constitutional democracy into a dictatorship. So it's ridiculous, and it's directly contradicted by the language of the Constitution, which says that the president can be prosecuted later. Even if he's impeached for office, he is still subject to prosecution and trial and punishment, Article 1, Section 3, Clause 7. But even beyond that stuff, you know, in terms of uh, you know, what you're raising there, they're running around saying, well, um, he should be able to take office again, despite Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Um, why? Because it would be undemocratic to exclude him from the ballot. But of course, that was a decision made when the Constitution was amended in 1868. That's an argument that's more than a century too late. If they want to amend the Constitution now, they should mm -hmm. go ahead and change the Constitution. They need a two-thirds vote in the House and the Senate and three-quarters of the states. Um, but in any event, I would say, you know, there, there are different ways that people are disqualified for running from president. There's 75 million people, uh, Americans, who can't run because of age restrictions. Mm -hmm. You've got to be 35 years old, okay? There are 25 million people who can't run because they're American citizens, but they were born abroad. These are kind of morally arbitrary distinctions, but they keep at least 100 million people from being eligible for president in this election. Donald Trump is in a class of maybe a dozen people who essentially have disqualified themselves under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment because they engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the democracy. So I would say that this is a pro-democratic provision that fortifies and strengthens democracy 
And, and, and this is what uh, a number of the proponents of, of that argument say, that this is actually meant to protect democracy. Uh, one of the arguments that Donald Trump supporters in this make is that it hasn't been determined it hasn't been determined legally that he was involved in an insurrection. I, I would argue that the, the Colorado uh, Supreme Court really looked into this. They really, really studied all the ways you could uh, interpret a rebellion and all the things that Donald Trump did, much of which um, you saw uh, as, a, as a member of the January 6th committee. We all saw uh, they they said that's not the part that's in question, really. Well, it was a painstaking factual analysis that the Colorado court engaged in, and they also defined an insurrection, according to original sources, as something more than a riot, but less than a full-blown revolution. An insurrection is a riot, essentially, that has a political purpose. And of course, that riot had a very specific political purpose, which was to block the peaceful transfer of power under the Constitution and to get Donald Trump in. I mean, imagine if Vice President Pence had said, you know what, you guys win. I'm buckling under and I'm going to simply declare that Donald Trump is one. I'm going to reject electoral college votes from Arizona, from Pennsylvania and Georgia. Does anybody in his or her right mind think that Donald Trump would have said, no, 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 no. I was just kidding. The way you really do this under the 12th Amendment, under the Constitution, is you count all the electoral college votes. And, uh, you know, I was just kidding about all that stuff. Of course not. He would have taken the office. He would have proceeded to impose martial law as Michael Flynn had been urging him to do. And we would be living under a completely different form of government right now. So if we listen to the wisdom of the founders, if we follow the literal text of the Constitution, Donald Trump simply can't be president again. There are tens of millions of other people in the country who can be, but he has disqualified himself under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment by trying to overthrow the constitutional order. What do you make of the discussion that's been getting a lot of ink these days by people who are not constitutional experts um, about whether it would be more satisfying or less satisfying to have Donald Trump disqualified versus defeated at the polls? I mean, it's an irrelevant question, legally speaking. I mean, at this point, we should be focused on who is qualified to run and who's not qualified to run. Section three of the 14th Amendment is not some kind of aberrational, eccentric provision in the Constitution. I count more than a half dozen different provisions in the Constitution that specifically target insurrectionary activity. So like take Article one, Section eight, Clause 15, which says Congress has the power to call forth the militias from the states in order to suppress insurrections. You look at the Republican Guarantee Clause in Article 4, which says Congress shall guarantee to the people of the states a Republican form of government and assist them in putting down domestic violence. Um, you look at the Treason Clause, the only place where a crime is defined in the Constitution, it consists of levying arms against the Union or adhering to the enemies thereof. So, you know, even Jefferson Davis, it's so interesting that some people are now claiming, well, Section 3 doesn't apply to the 14th Amendment. Jefferson Davis, when he was tried for treason in Virginia, claimed um, erroneously and unsuccessfully that he could not be tried for treason because he already was guilty 
under Section 3 of the mm. 14th Amendment and therefore was being punished by not being able to serve as president. Of course, it's not double jeopardy because it's not even a criminal punishment under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It's just stating a qualification or a disqualification for serving in federal or state office after you've engaged in insurrection or rebellion. What's your sense of how this plays out? Donald Trump has uh, appealed everything, as is his legal right to do, uh, that he has the ability to appeal. The D.C. Uh, Court of Appeals uh, is quite central uh, these days. We're going to be hearing from them a couple of times. At, at some point, we are probably going to miss the, 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 the dates by which this uh, federal tra- uh, cri- uh, trial needs to start at the beginning of March. Is it your sense that this will go to trial before the election? Yes, I believe that the Jack Smith case will proceed um, on the various insurrection charges and the conspiracy to interfere and obstruct uh, a federal proceeding and obstruction of a federal proceeding and denial of the voting rights of the people and defrauding the public. I think that those charges will be heard and that trial will go forward. Um, it, it really has to go forward. Um, you know, otherwise it's going to create you know, even greater problems down the road. But I think also this Section 3 of the 14th Amendment uh, question has got to be settled by the Supreme Court. I mean, this is the test of textualism and originalism on the Supreme Court. Do the self-defined textualists Mm -hmm. and originalists really believe their own rhetoric? Because the language is completely straightforward and the purposes are clear. I mean, when the radical Republicans who put this in the Constitution started, it was far broader. It was total disenfranchisement forever of anybody who participated in uh, rebellion or secession or insurrection. When it got over the Senate, they said, that's way too broad. Let's narrow it in to the class of people who were office holders before, who violated their oath of office by engaging in it. And then um, even then, we're not going to disenfranchise them. Somebody like Donald Trump can continue voting, but they cannot serve in office again because they've proven themselves untrustworthy. Yeah, it's 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 akin to you can't ride on this uh, ride at the amusement park if you're not this tall. It's it's disqualification. It's not it's not even a penalty. It's just a you're you're not qualified to to be on the ballot. That's right. And as I was saying, you know, there's tens of millions of people who are not qualified to run for president either. And some of them might be perfectly qualified. I've got colleagues on the Democratic side, the Republican side who are not 35 years old. Maxwell Frost would be a great president. You know, AOC is not 35. We, you know, there's others who can't serve. But okay, that's just the Constitution. It's not undemocratic. It's the rules of the game. And these are our rules under the Constitution. The question is whether the court is going to act like a real court. Ah, to have somebody who understands the Constitution as much as you do to even be uh, president. Jamie Raskin, always good to see you. Thank you very much for being with us tonight. Jamie Raskin, Congressman of Maryland. We do have a lot to talk about tonight. Uh, We're going to unpack the forces that led to the resignation of Harvard's first black woman president, including the role of a right-wing activist who spearheaded attacks on CRT and DEI in academia. Plus, the killing of a key Hamas figure in Lebanon threatens to send the Israel-Hamas war into a wider regional conflict. We'll have that coming up next.
Today, across the Israeli-occupied West Bank, Palestinians took to the streets protesting the recent killing of a senior Hamas official, Saleh al-Aruri. Aruri was deputy chairman of Hamas's political bureau, as well as the commander of their military wing in the West Bank, and a key go-between between the Lebanese government militant group Hezbollah, which is another Iranian-backed group that has targeted Israel. Last night, he was killed in a drone strike, not in Gaza. Not even in the occupied West Bank, which Israel controls, but outside of Beirut, Lebanon, a sovereign country. Israel itself has neither confirmed nor denied any involvement. Some surmise that's because it's generally viewed as against international law to carry out assassinations in other countries, or more simply because acknowledging the strike could draw Lebanon or Hezbollah directly into Israel's war with Hamas. Hezbollah, for its part, has called the killing, quote, a serious attack on Lebanon that will never pass without a response and punishment. Now, since the start of the war, Hezbollah fighters have been exchanging fire with Israeli military across Israel's northern border. But today's development, an assassination deep inside Lebanon, has the potential to move the conflict one step closer to a larger regional war. And it comes as Israel begins to withdraw several thousand troops from Gaza in an order in order to prepare for a prolonged fight. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said this past weekend the war will go on for, quote, many more months. Joining me now is Peter Beinart. He's an MSNBC political analyst and the author of the Beinart Notebook on Substack. Peter, good to see you. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, first of all, let's just discuss... There's, there aren't many people out there who suspect that this assassination was not carried out by Israel. Um, what's your sense of why Israel won't say so? They're not uh, they're not denying it. They're not acknowledging it. They're sort of skirting the issue. Yeah, Israel has a tendency, a history of kind of being coy about these questions. But as you said, I don't think anyone has any doubts that this was Israel. And Look, if Israel's going to—I would rather have Israel use military force against Hamas leaders than against a mass, you know, against an entire civilian population in Gaza. I also understand why Israelis are worried about Hezbollah's military power in the north. But my fundamental concern is that this government seems to think that its problems have only military solutions. It's not offering any political horizon for the basic underlying cause of these conflicts. And I don't think these actions in the long run, therefore, are going to make Israelis safer. So one of the, those uh, underlying issues is is Palestinian leadership. Uh, there are issues about Palestinian leadership in the West Bank. Clearly, uh, Hamas came to power because of some of those issues, because of some uh, enabling by the Israeli government and because of general dissatisfaction amongst uh, Palestinians. America's sort of trying to get Israel to have that discussion about what it looks like. Um, Israel has said there's no there's, there's no Hamas in the future of, of Palestinian leadership, but neither do they want the Palestinian Authority involved in that. You and I have talked Talked about this. There are a lot of Palestinians who don't want the Palestinian Authority. But how do what does this look like? How do we how do we look toward the end of this war and what happens to the Palestinians? This Israeli government isn't offering any vision whatsoever that might suggest that after Hamas, Palestinians, even if they had a completely different kind of leadership, might have any path 
to freedom. It's basically just offering occupation and, frankly, apartheid, which is what Israel's own human rights organizations, how they describe the situation, as far as the eye can see. And in those circumstances, Israel is going to meet with more Palestinian violent resistance. The only way, it seems to me, to undermine Palestinian support for the kind of horrifying attacks that we saw on October 7th is by showing Palestinians that by ethical resistance, resistance that follows international law, that they can actually achieve their freedom. But this government is dominated by people who want Jewish supremacy in, per in perpetuity between the river and the sea. And that's only going to create more conflict. The, the uh, right-wing, uh, far-right politician, uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir, has called for something that uh, people might think of as ethnic cleansing. They're talking about the mass migration of Gaza residents. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has said he's in conversations with world leaders about uh, accepting uh, these Gazan refugees. Uh, what do you make of that? There, there's the, the way uh, uh, the Israeli right-wing is looking at this is that the solution to Gaza is for there not to be Palestinians in Gaza. Absolutely. And this is not a marginal idea inside the Israeli government. We've now had the, the minister of national security, the finance minister, the intelligence minister, according to reports, the prime minister and the foreign minister, who have all talked about what they call voluntary migration. But when you create a massive humanitarian catastrophe where people are literally starving to death and 85 percent of people are displaced from their homes, it's not voluntary. You've made Gaza unlivable. And now Israel, according to reporting by the Financial Times and Israel's own newspapers, is based basically pressuring Egypt to open the doors so Palestinians will, from Gaza will flee and not be allowed back. And the horrible historical irony of this is that most of the people in Gaza are from families of refugees to begin with. They're not from Gaza. They were expelled to Gaza in Israel's War of Independence in 1948. And now there's the prospect of another act of mass expulsion. The U.S. government needs to take this seriously and make it clear that it is an absolute red line. Peter, you've studied this for a really long time. You, you've read about it. You've written about it. Is there a solution in, in your mind? And I don't mean just the short term. The solution in the short term would be to get those hostages out of Gaza and get them returned to Israel and for the bombardment of Gaza to stop. But is there a strategic solution? Do you, do you see something happening or with the present players? Is that just not possible? I don't think with the play present players. I think we're a long way from this. But there is a basic principle that I believe in very strongly. And it, it is this. When people have freedom, when they have a government that actually listens to them, when they can do things like vote, then societies become more peaceful. Because most people don't turn to violence as a first resort. They turn to violence when they feel like it's the only way to get government listened to. And sometimes they do, as Hamas did on October 7th, horrifying things under those circumstances. And if you want to make society more peaceful, you need to give people their freedom. That in the long term, whether it's freedom in a Palestinian state or it's freedom in one state where Palestinians have citizenship and the right to vote, just as we saw in post-apartheid Africa, just as we saw in Northern Ireland, also places where there was terrible, terrible violence, you saw that things became much more peaceful for all people when all people got their political freedom. 
Peter, good to see you. Thank you for being with us tonight. Peter Beinart is an MSNBC political analyst. He's the editor at large at Jewish Currents uh, magazine. He's also the author of the Beinart Notebooks on Substack. All right, still ahead tonight, how Donald Trump has turned dozens of criminal charges into a rallying cry that could catapult him back to the White House. But first, two down. That's how Congressman, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik marked the resignation of Harvard President Claudine Gay in a tweet today. We'll talk to a Harvard professor about this political campaign against university leaders and why the conservatives leading the charge are promising to keep it going. That's next. I'd like to make it explicit. Uh, the president and the White House, it's within their authority and power to immediately issue an executive order abolishing critical race theory trainings from the federal government. That was a conservative activist, Christopher Rufo, in September of 2020, making an explicit request that former President Trump issue an executive order abolishing critical race theory training from the federal government. Rufo is likely the reason your conservative uncle knows the phrase critical race theory to begin with. He's the reason Fox News became obsessed with it and the reason that Trump became obsessed with it as a buzz term for pretty much anything to do with race. We know, thanks to reporting from The Washington Post, that when Rufo made his request, Trump was watching. Within a month, Trump issued an executive order demanding that no federal money be used for critical race theory. Chris Rufo got what he asked for. After that, Rufo's anti-CRT campaign ginned up enough conservative pressure against Nicole Hannah-Jones, the co-founder of the 1619 Project, that the University of North Carolina denied her tenure. Jones had a Pulitzer Prize, a MacArthur Genius Grant, and support from the school's chancellor and faculty. But conservative pressure worked. Rufo then set his sights on Florida. He helped Florida Governor Ron DeSantis craft legislation like the Stop Woke Act that restricted dis discussions of race and gender in schools, universities, and workplaces. Early last year, DeSantis appointed Rufo as one of the members of the Board of Trustees for Florida's public university, New College. There again, Rufo publicized his goal early and loudly. He tweeted, quote, we will be shutting down low performing, ideologically captured academic departments and hiring new faculty. The student body will be recomposed over time. Some current students will self-select out. Others will graduate. We'll recruit new students who are mission aligned. At New College board meetings, Rufo made clear that he did not care if his goals failed to win hearts and minds. One of the items that we discussed, that I discussed today with Governor DeSantis and with legislators present, is that diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, which sounds great, but in practice uh, divides people and offers separate judgments on the basis of race and identity. My opinion does matter, actually, unfortunately could, for could you. I His opinion does matter. Within a month of that comment, Rufo's board of trustees had abolished the college's diversity, equity, and inclusion office. They then did things like axe the school's gender studies program and recruit professors more in line with their conservative mission. Since Rufo's board took over, more than a third of the former faculty have resigned, and about 125 students have chosen not to return. Rufo's plan worked. And now today, we are seeing the impact of Rufo's latest crusade, a crusade against the first black woman to serve as president of the oldest institution of higher education in the country, Harvard President Claudine Gay. 
Last month, Rufo tweeted, quote, we launched the Claudine Gay plagiarism story from the right. The next step is to smuggle it into the media apparatus of the left, legitimizing the narrative to center left actors who have the power to topple her. Then squeeze. End quote. In the past few weeks, allegations that Harvard's president had plagiarized academic work accomplished exactly what Rufo predicted. They went from Rufo's blog to the pages of conservative publications to mainstream publications like The New York Times. Now Harvard itself has investigated the allegations and found that they are, at worst, instances of inadequate citation. But they are not what the word plagiarism makes you think of. Gay was not stealing anyone's ideas, nor was she presenting other people's ideas as her own. Nevertheless, today, Claudine Gay resigned anyway. The story of Claudine Gay's resignation is about a lot of things. Was it easier for conservatives to push her out because she's a woman? Was it easier because she's black? Probably all of the above. But this is also a story of bad actors like Chris Rufo trying to bend academia toward their own ideological missions. We're going to talk to a current esteemed Harvard professor about all of this and the other major bad faith argument used to chase President Gay out and what it means for discourse in this country after this. There is a reason that the testimony of the presidents of Harvard, Penn, and MIT made history as the most viewed testimony ever, with over one billion views. And that's because their testimony was morally bankrupt and pathetic. Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik was on Fox News today celebrating the resignation of Harvard's president, Claudine Gay, the first black woman to lead the university with the shortest tenure in the institution's history. Gay's resignation comes a month after Stefanik pressed the presidents of the University of Pennsylvania, the, Ma the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Harvard about anti-Semitism on their campuses in the wake of the October terrorist attack on Israel. Stefanik took issue with the leader's lawyerly answers to the question, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate your school's rules on bullying and harassment. Stefanik called for all three university presidents to be ousted. When the University of Pennsylvania's president, Liz McGill, resigned under pressure from that school's board, Stefanik celebrated. She celebrated again today, quote, I will always deliver results. This is just the beginning of what will be the greatest scandal of any college or university in history. Joining me now is Imani Perry, Harvard University professor in studies of women, gender and sexuality and in African and Amer African-American studies. Uh, professor Perry, it's good to see you. Normally I get to talk to you about uh, fun things like literature and, and, and books. Um, this feels to me to be very dark. What has happened here? Um, it, it's a confluence of a whole bunch of, of nefarious interests that got together to to oust Claudine Gay. Ostensibly, this was first about anti-Semitism on college campuses. Then it became about um, uh, inflated allegations of plagiarism in which Chris Rufo took great pride that he was going to oust uh, Claudine Gay. And now she's out. Yeah, it's horrifying. Um, it's a really demoralizing moment. I think one of the things that has sort of been lost in much of the conversation is how challenging the position it was to be the leader of any university at this moment, right? So that we have all of these constituencies, we have the board, we have students, we have faculty, we have alums, and we have donors, um, all with uh, varying investments in this moment of um, intense political conflict um, a, a historic moment of, of, I think, in many ways of devastating um, proportions. Um, and so it was really difficult, I think, to be a leader and then to have this concerted effort 
that was really part of a kind of comprehensive decision um, to commit to keeping certain kinds of people out of these kind of institutional spaces and also to keeping knowledge about them out of these institutional spaces for ideological purposes. Um, it's, it's altogether quite harrowing. I think, you know, there, there is a, uh, there's a concerted effort to oust, um, some of us from being in places that are deemed, um, prestigious and sources of knowledge. And that happens from K-12 all the way to universities. And Claudine Gay is the latest victim of those efforts. I, I would argue most people don't know the names of too many university presidents. Um, they come and go. They've, they've existed for a long time. We don't necessarily know their politics. We certainly haven't read their theses or whatever it is. Claudine Gay came under uh, remarkable scrutiny, and it wasn't accidental. Um, it was a, it was a it was a project, really. Um, uh, the, this project to oust university presidents, including Claudine Gay, was helmed by what I think are some very odd bedfellows: Chris Rufo of the Manhattan Institute, who's come out against DEI and CRT. Most people don't. You know, he doesn't know what CRT is, or at least he knows, but he misrepresents no. it. Bill Ackman, a, a Harvard alum and 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 uh, rich guy, um, Jonathan Greenblatt from the Anti Defamation League, Elise Stefanik, who has not articulated a uh, a particular apprehension about anti Semites uh, some of the time, and suddenly this was her charge. What happened here? Mm -hmm. How how did this all come together to to end up ousting Claudine Gay? Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's hard to to fully understand, and I think it will take some time to actually sort of um, pull apart all of the elements. What's remarkable, I think, is is how transparent um, the interest was, uh -huh. though, in in getting rid of, getting rid of her. Um, and uh, what's alarming is that it seems to be the case that these political forces can, um, you know, dismantle the structure of higher education and as well as K-12 education and to, and, 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 you know, universities are supposed to be places where there are a range of ideas where people can debate, where people can develop, where people can um, be in conflict, where, where people can grow. And it, 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 we seem to be finding ourselves in, in a kind of neo-McCarthyist moment um, driven by these, a variety of um, political actors who have, not necessarily all the same interests, but for the fact that they are are resistant to the idea of sort of a multiracial uh, democratic order with people of varying identities taking various positions. And so, um, you know, it's 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 a dark day. It's a devastating yeah. day. I do. I do hope that, though, that 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 those of us who believe in um, the principles of democracy and deliberation and intellectual openness and free speech mm -hmm. actually you know, true free speech can actually sort of uh, push back against this. Um, well, you and I have spent a lot of time essential. talking about banned books because of that. We, we believe in free mm -hmm. speech, but you are also a person who's written about some of these things that make people uncomfortable in in yes. in this time, this challenging time. Chris Rufo, who, uh, you know, a lot of people may not know about him. Alex Wagner's done a lot of work on on Chris Rufo and the threat that he poses. He, he tweeted recently, he said, I am contributing an initial $10,000 to a plagiarism hunting fund. We will expose the rot in the Ivy League and restore truth rather than racialist ideology as the highest principle in academic life. Now, I would argue that you, in your writings, your books, your teaching, you are pursuing truth. You would like truth to oh, be known absolutely. that you think people haven't heard before. But yes. some would put people like you or, or Claudine Gay or anybody into a bucket of racialist ideology. 
Sure. And, you know, it, it's it's the very formulation is predicated on a fallacy that there is sort of a singular truth, right? Ideas and history are constantly under debate. Interpretations are subject to debate. We look at varying pieces of evidence, we organize them in various ways, and we try to come to our sort of best account of what happened or what should be or how we describe the world um, to uh, you know, to reduce, um, on the one hand, any dis- discussion of race and racial inequality to racialist ideology, and on the other, to propose a kind of singular truth that uh, uh, an individual self, sort of a, a self uh, um, a donned individual who can be the arbiter of truth, um, on the other, is 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 alarming um, and manipulative to a general public uh, in ways that that. Um, that are clearly quite damaging. Um, and, and this will have a chilling effect without question, both on institutions that I think will shy away from embracing scholars who are pushing us to think critically about the world and on scholars who do not want to put themselves in, under this kind of scrutiny mm-hmm. and exposure. Uh, Dr. Perry, thank you for joining us tonight. We always appreciate your time. Imani Perry uh, is a professor of uh, studies in women, gender and sexuality and in African and American studies at Harvard. We have one more story for you tonight, how Donald Trump transformed a string of political failures at the onset of his third run for the White House into staggering political fortune. That's next. When Donald Trump announced his third run for the presidency, he didn't do so from a position of strength, despite the image that he sought to project. Republicans were coming off of a bruising failure in the midterm elections. Many blamed Trump for their losses after voters rejected some of his handpicked Senate candidates in key races. Add to that dozens of grand jury subpoenas that had gone out to members of Trump's orbit as part of a federal investigation of January 6th. Some of his advisors had even begun testifying before the grand jury. And then newly reelected Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was hinting at the possibility of a presidential run and shoring up support to beat Trump. Thirteen months later, Donald Trump appears on track to easily win his party's nomination. New national polling shows Donald Trump leading his closest opponent, Nikki Haley, by 49 points. And Trump's 91 felony charges appear to be having little to no negative impact on his base of support. New reporting from the Washington Post describes Donald Trump's turnaround this way. He's turned his criminal indictments into a rallying cry. His GOP opposition has so far failed to coalesce around a single effective message or challenger. And his political operation has been more professional and disciplined than in the past, with savvy moves such as challenging, changing contest rules, lining up supportive delegates, and pressuring Republicans to come to his defense. Joining us now is Isaac Arnsdorf, Washington Post national political reporter and co-author of that piece. He's also the author of the forthcoming book, Finish What We Started, The MAGA Movement's Ground War to End Democracy. Mr. Arnsdorf, thank you for being with us tonight. Thanks for your reporting. Those numbers are fascinating. Um, the, the, the polling numbers for Donald Trump, the, uh, the, 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 we were showing some polling earlier in the show that uh, mainstream Republicans are less likely to blame Donald Trump for January 6th and more likely to think that maybe Joe Biden didn't win the election. To what do you attribute all of this? 
Well, there have been a few factors. One, you mentioned the failure of the opposition within the Republican Party to coalesce around a message against him. And it wasn't for lack of trying. Our reporting found that there was a, there were a lot of well-funded efforts throughout 2023 to find attacks on Trump that would work with Republican primary voters. And they basically came up empty uh, because they were just hitting this wall of how much Republican primary voters still like Donald Trump and how much they resented attacks on him. A lot of those attacks actually backfired on the other candidates when they tried them. The other thing that happened was Ron DeSantis, who a lot of Republicans who wanted to move on from Trump were pinning their hopes on right after the midterms, he waited a really long time to get in. He waited until May. And part of that had to do with uh, needing to change the law in Florida so that he could run as a sitting governor. Uh, but that gave Trump a lot, a, a huge head start. And he just pummeled DeSantis and started steadily bringing down his poll numbers throughout that whole time, with, with DeSantis basically without any kind of outfit around him to respond. And then the, the other thing we really have to mention is the prosecutions, the indictments, which you know are certainly causing Trump Trump a lot of trouble now, uh, and could, it could be a different story in the general election. But the effect in the primary was to rally Republicans around him and make a lot of Republican voters want to support him because of those prosecutions. One of the things you reported on is, is uh, Trump's team actually testing attacks against Trump in focus groups. Um, I'm assuming that they were honest about it. They were in good faith. They were trying to figure out what, what attack would stick. And, and they largely found nothing. Well, that's standard in a campaign. You know, you have to try to figure out what your vulnerabilities are so you can figure out how to respond to them. So it was both the Trump campaign that was testing that and the other candidates and uh, even major donors who weren't necessarily affiliated with a campaign, but were sort of testing the waters. You know, if they're going to write a huge check to attack Trump, uh, you know, a lot of these are investors who want to know they're going to get some return on that investment. Uh, and I spoke to one Republican operative who recalled observing one of these focus groups. And uh, they tried explaining to the Republicans in the focus group that, you know, Trump promised to build a wall. That was like his signature campaign promise in 2016. And there is no wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. And there was a woman in the group who said, well, actually, he must have meant to do that. He intentionally left gaps in the wall because that way it would herd the migrants into those gaps and make them easier to detain. And the operative told me, you know, watching this and just thinking, how can you possibly argue with that kind of thinking? Isaac, how much of this has to do with a, a polarized news environment where people just get different stories? Their, their realities about what Donald Trump is and the things he says uh, are entirely different, including the fact that he sort of uses increasingly authoritarian and dictatorial rhetoric uh, that would, generally speaking, turn people off in a democracy. And it's not for his supporters. Well, and he's been speaking, you know, to right wing media and to his supporters directly. He hasn't faced uh, a, a mainstream inter interview in, in quite some time, uh, several months. And so he's uh, he's intentionally going around. And that changed, you know, early on in the primary when he was trying to use an advantage of media coverage over Ron DeSantis. Uh, there was a lot more access. And uh, that's changed as he has increased his lead. 
And, and you see the effect of that in the poll, the Washington Post poll mm-hmm. that you referenced earlier. Um, and, you know, those the, the, the numbers of Republicans who believe that uh, January 6th was, a, uh, was an FBI sting operation yeah. or something like that, or that the election wasn't legitimate, those numbers have actually increased since 2021. Some wild reporting, Isaac, but thank you for doing it. We appreciate it. Isaac Arnsdorf is Washington Post national political reporter. We appreciate your time tonight. And that is our show for tonight.